Welcome to the Social Contract Today podcast, brought to you by Podbean, hosted by me, Jacqueline Courtney. This is the podcast which takes a look at the state of the social contract today and aims to imagine a new social contract for a better, fairer and more transparent society. And whether we the people have given government, uh, business or the mysterious powers that be, far too much influence. So if you're new here, consider subscribing and giving us a follow at Contract Today on Twitter. So in this very first episode, I'd like to talk about what the social contract really means. Because to make a podcast called The Social Contract without first explaining what it is would be kind of strange, wouldn't it? And then I'd like to go into who came up with it and whether the theory, which is ultimately what it is, has anything to stand on in our world today. A world which is really different from the the world which the key theorists of the social contract theory lived in during the 17th and 18th century when the theory first became prominent. And I'd also like to talk a bit about why I'm so intrigued by it as a concept and what the goal of this podcast is. Are you still with me? I hope I've not lost you. All right, let's go. I first came across the social contract theory when I took a module called Corporate Collapse at university. A lot of the content on there was all about big business failure, business ethics, the role of moral reasoning and government in all these instances. I especially enjoyed looking at the world of uh, business in this way and so much so that Ever since then, I've been forging a career in corporate governance, uh, a bit of risk and compliance. And basically, I think a lot of my interest in this arena also has a lot to do with the timing in that I was in between finishing secondary school and studying for my A-levels as I observed the banking crisis unfold. And even by the time I entered university, there was really no end in sight. Uh, So over five years, I was really concerned with how all of that was going to affect me all that was going on in the world really just gave me loads of anxiety about how I would enter into this working world. And it made me really angry, actually, about those who sort of allowed it all to happen. So ever since then, I've not only developed a passion for the social contract theory, but I've also developed a habit of looking for examples of breaches in the social contract and stories of unethical business practices in papers like the FT, that's the Financial Times, and The uh, Economist, for example. Right, so that's enough about me for now. Let's get on to the theory and what it's all about. So there's quite a bit of information out there when you Google. Um, The the theory is pretty old. It's about 300 years ago, in fact, uh, when it came into common parlance uh, in the 16th century uh, before resurging again in the 17th century. So it really begs the question, why bother with something so ancient And what can be learned from a theory as old as a social contract? Well, if you're asking me, my answer would be that a lot can be learned. In fact, there's a brilliant tree word that perfectly encapsulates the beauty of looking back to help us understand our today more clearly. By the way, tree is the language of the Ashanti people of Ghana, where I'm from. And the word is Sankofa or Sankofa if I'm trying to say in the accent it's supposed to be said in and uh, it's typified normally by a bird looking over its shoulder Uh, it's a transitive verb meaning to return to go to fetch um, to, to go back and get basically something and when it's used as an expression you're telling the listener that it's not taboo to go and get what it's was what is at risk of being left behind 
And that's exactly how I feel about the social contract. It's something that we should all go back and dissect and possibly rewrite. But we should definitely not, not risk leaving it behind, if you get what I mean. And uh, just because it's an old philosophy or theory doesn't mean that it's ever wrong to go back and use that knowledge to aid your future. At its foundations, the social contract theory is a school of thought uh, that aims to solve the problem of political authority. And if you've ever wondered why or how government uh, are able to hold the power that they do, the answer is really in these three words, the social contract. Its key theorists include prominent thinkers of the 17th and 18th centuries, such as uh, Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, uh, Immanuel uh, Kant, and my personal favourite, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Each of them discussed the idea of a social contract in a slightly different way, but each of them agreed that there was a fundamental agreement amongst individuals to organise society in such a way that there'd be mutual protection of life, property, welfare and prevention of harm. The basis of the social contract theory uh, is that the idea that there's a state of nature as well, which is so unpleasant and inefficient for the needs of individuals, that a contract is really needed amongst the society's people for it to function properly. So taking the top three theorists, Rousseau, Hobbes and Locke, exactly how did their vision of the theory differ is what I'd like to get into now. And side note, for further reading on the social contract theory, according to these guys, I will be putting up a link in the show notes to a journal um, on SSRN, which you can read, um, which which tells you so much and is really insightful. Uh, but a lot of what I'm going to talk about is um, is taken from there as well. So let's go for Hobbes. Thomas Hobbes, that is the life of an individual in the state of nature was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish and short. He characterised the the state of nature as being a state riddled with self-interest and a lack of rights or contracts which binded the society together. With there being no single leadership or authority, the life of an individual was marred by anarchy. Uh, Hobbes believed that people have this natural desire for security and for order and therefore to secure such uh, protection and self-preservation or and, and also to avoid misery and pain uh, people would enter into this contract that is they voluntarily surrendered all their rights all their freedoms to some authority who would protect and preserve their lives and property This idea is what forms the basis for having rulers and monarchies, in fact. In Hobbes' view, the subjects of these authorities had no rights, absolutely no rights against the uh, authority, and they were to remain obedient uh, in all situations, no matter how bad or unworthy the authority might have been. However, Hobbes did agree that there should be a moral obligation on the authority. So it can be concluded, therefore, that Hobbes felt like had this belief that uh, might is always right. So if you were powerful, that you were you were in the right and what you said goes. So the key themes of Hobbes's social contract, just in summary, include individualism, materialism, utilitarianism and absolutions. I'll let you look up the definitions of all those things. Um enjoy further reading uh for john Locke, his view of the state of nature is nowhere near as bleak as hobbes is in fact he almost romanticizes about the state of nature describing it as having been reasonably good and enjoyable 
though there was some insecurity with your property, you weren't sure if someone was just going to come up, roll up and take your stuff. Locke felt like property was seriously insecure because in the state of nature, there was no established law, no impartial judge and no natural power to execute any natural laws. The uh, state of nature in the earlier society, in, in Locke's view, was one where men lived according to reason without a common superior on earth to judge between them um and it was a place where goodwill and peace thrived a state of perfect liberty if you will where everything was free from the interference of others and in his state of nature there was this equality and independence therefore but with property being so insecure people eventually entered into the social contract under which they did not surrender all their rights to one single body, body politic, as uh, Hobbes uh, concluded, but they did surrender the right to maintain order and uh, for each individual to keep their inalienable rights permitted under natural law, which basically include right to life, liberty and estate. And by entering into such an agreement, people gained several things that they didn't have in the state of nature. That was laws. They gained judges to adjudicate those laws and they gained an executive power to enforce those laws. Now, the executive power, or government, if you will, and their purpose, in Locke's opinion, was to uphold and protect the natural rights of society, the society that it governed. And as long as it fulfilled this purpose, as long as government did those things, uh, as in protect and uphold the, the natural rights of people in society, then the laws were binding. But the moment it ceases or ceased to fulfil those purposes or reneged on that uh, agreement, then the laws would have no validity at all and therefore could be thrown out. Right. What did Jean-Jacques Rousseau say in comparison? Well, for Rousseau, life in the state of nature was, just as in Locke's view, uh, also happy. There was actually equality amongst men, he said. However, as time went on, as the population increased, the means by which people could enjoy their needs or get their meet their needs also changed. Uh, very slowly, people started to uh, innovate and divide labour between them and between their families. And therefore, inventions came around. And as a result, people realised that they were people were realising and utilising their individual talents and skills which then led to comparisons being made between individuals, leading then to shame, envy, pride and contempt when everybody realised, oh, you're good at this, oh, you do this really well. And so there was a lot of competition arising. Therefore, people slowly began to live into in, in smaller communities and slowly property became more and more private, which then caused a dissension into a state characterised by greed, competition and inequality. Following this fall from grace, um, which is probably the best way to, to term this, people then decided to surrender their rights, not to a single individual, but to a community, the community as a whole, which Rousseau named general will. A general will is the will of the majority of citizens which uh, to which blind obedience was, was to be given. In Rousseau's view, the state was formed to uh, guarantee rights, liberties, uh, freedom and, and equality. And similarly to Locke, Rousseau reasoned that should a government and its laws not meet the needs of the general will, then they would be discarded. That government could just be, again, thrown out. 
And this was based on the fundamental view that even though on the one hand, an individual has parted ways with their uh, natural rights, in return, they gained civil liberties such as freedom of speech, equality and uh, the right to assembly. Rousseau reasoned, and actually I quote, he said, every man is born a citizen and therefore a member of a free state and his right to vote um, and therefore has his right to vote, which provides him or her or they with the uh, duty to study public affairs. Essentially, Rousseau was saying, however little influence I can have on matters of the public, I too deem it my right to voice my opinion. He felt it his duty to study public affairs. And in the same way, through this podcast, I see it as my right as a woman born a citizen and a member of a free state with her own right to vote. It is therefore my duty to comment on the state of our public affairs. It's really important to me actually now more than ever before because the state of our culture, the state of our institutions and as a result, the state of our society really feels like it's in disarray. Uh, it's necessary to me that we take a step back to really consider whether a social contract is being upheld at all within the confines of our society. But anyway, I digress. Uh, Back to Rousseau, just to conclude, he essentially favoured people's sovereignty and based on on his belief and this was based on his belief that natural law is confined to the freedom and liberty of the individual that's probably the reason why one of his most famous quotes is man is born free but everywhere he is in chains right so in a nutshell the founding fathers of the theory of social contract either felt it was better for the individual to be in this unwritten agreement with a state because the alternative was this wild wild world where anyone could do anything but they also believed there was a moral obligation for each citizen to be engaged and hold the state account except for perhaps Hobbes you could say and uh, when we look at our modern world it's it really is stricken with inequality especially in recent years that's really become apparent uh, it seems our leaders if you're looking at the UK or the US or throughout Europe in fact have really struggled with this concept the world all over people live in distrust and in and in some places in fear of harm and violence against their livelihoods so against their property um, modern democracies have essentially failed to consistently ensure that the agreement to a social contract is upheld And that's perhaps why I make a case, and many people do, for rewriting the social contract, not only to weave trust back into the relationship between government and people, which is very important, but to also ensure that in giving up our rights and freedoms and in contributing to society, that we are adequately reimbursed by continuing to be free from harm and mistreatment. And when we're not, I'm just I'm like, what what the hell? What's going on? Like when we look at healthcare, the medical social contract has been egregiously broken in the past from the Promodos cover up uh, to the Alder Hay organ scandal. Our incredible National Health Service in the UK, which it is incredible, is not without its flaws. In media, even the BBC, our most prominent news source, has had has definitely had its controversies um, over the years, ever since it was it came about in 1922. And when it comes to our police forces, who the social contract theory says are there to protect lives, there's definitely been no shortage of mishaps, um, particularly when we consider uh, widespread police corruption and persistent institutional racism throughout the police service in the UK. And then you move on to the business world, which I've already touched on in regards to the banking crisis. 
there has been little corporate social responsibility, um, which was really evident in the credit crunch when it hit in 2007 and 8. Um, and ever since then, it's been abundantly clear that some of our largest um, institutions have for years been playing with with the public's money or with money of the of the consumer. And until June 14th, 2017, a date that many, uh, many Brits will never forget. I didn't personally realise that the state of our construction industry was just so crooked. But then, unfortunately, the Grenfell Tower fire happened and the true underbelly of the construction industry was exposed for the world to see. And I feel like the buck has to stop somewhere. Can it be the fault of all the players in these industries alone? Um, Of course not. These scandals and many more, um, I'd say, haven't occurred by sheer bad luck, but actually by willful ignorance of government after government, and also because of the public's tendency, I guess, to turn a blind eye to the many corruption and falsehoods in banking, media, policing, healthcare and construction, you name it. As voters, with a duty to study public affairs, as Rousseau said, um, and therefore a duty to comment on public affairs, have we really, or has it been, our individual willful ignorance and therefore failure to uh, hold accountable those whom we've given our power to ever the socialist in my opinion it is a little bit of everyone's fault that we are where we are for instance in the UK I feel like people are really guilty of an underhanded crime and that is negligence from electing a woefully underqualified politician uh, to lead us as a nation we've we've really got to take some some part of the blame in this currently our government is failing to tackle a very serious global pandemic um and even in this in this space and in this environment there's still an inability to call out practices which threaten the welfare of future generations and current generations we have a sense of privilege um in the uk and i think that's our greatest burden ultimately And what we fail to see, though, is that with great privilege comes great responsibility. We are privileged enough to live in a society where we don't have to care until we're personally affected. And for many people, the time is only coming now where government failures are slowly starting to negatively impact um, on them through health, uh, uh, through money and their day to day lives. And it's taken, therefore, for many people, a gigantic pandemic to crush that privilege. And so it's it's really imperative that we pay close enough attention, I think, to what's going on, to how it all works, rather than idly allowing malpractices uh, to go on unexplained and reprimand free, because the social contract is there, the constitution is there, and it says if government do not do what they're, they're supposed to do, if they do not uphold the, the protection of natural rights of, of the society that they govern over, then they can be thrown out. In the past 40 days, more than 30,000 people have perished in the UK. Actually, the number is around 36,000 at the moment. And just like that, um, people have perished because our government has really failed to act despite having about 11 weeks notice uh, that a silent, deadly killer was of a virus was on the loose. And we apparently live in a democratic, safe society. Question mark. I don't think so. Uh, it's all too apparent that our leaders to whom we've handed over our natural individual liberties and rights as part of the social contract, um, it's quite clear that they've absolutely been taking the liberty 
it's a true annihilation, I think, of the social contract, what's happening at the moment in the UK. And this wanton, wanton disregard is, I think, the leading cause of, cause of many of our problems and challenges today. When you look at our natural world, it's increasingly deteriorating. Uh, but what isn't changing? Well, that's easy. The greed and hubris of those that we've given our power to. Theirs is just only growing. Anyway, as the social contract in Locke and Rousseau's view says, government should really ensure that the needs of society are met before any selfish gain is, um, is achieved. And as we've seen our prime minister taking holidays in the last few months, um, it, taking time off, uh, except aside from being ill, taking time off and just sort of not really engaging um we've seen that that actually there is this um, shirking of responsibility going on and right now uh, in fact we have a de facto leader of the free world Donald Trump who's a man who I can only describe as despicable and is all too proud to admit that we need not worry about the existential threat posed by uh, the rapid rapidly changing climate of the earth and ironically this is a guy who who, who leads the country who is mo most culpable of the threat that we face if you thought that Donald Trump was bad now he's also saying would you believe that the pandemic of the coronavirus isn't that big of a deal and he's taking his own drugs for it and people should uh, feel free to drink uh, things like Dettol they'll be fine to you've really got to consider just how callous and irresponsible um, it is to elect somebody like this who's um, who on whose word millions of people uh, can follow with with blind obedience. I think that's a true example. Electing somebody like Donald Trump is a, an example of how guilty the public can be of negligence, especially when you factor in that it's that the, there's this severely unqualified person who um, has an incredibly huge following and his politics resonates with a silent army. But anyway, I, I digress and I will just say that the clock is ticking and as our natural world continues to break down amidst this crisis, a new social contract must be written, um, preferably set in stone this time, not just sort of a philosophical uh, thing. I think it should be written and that's one of the first principles of the new social contract um, on this podcast that I'd like to establish that one pr first principle for rewriting the social contract should be that it is written down that it says it in plain text and uh, that we approach social change movements therefore in a different way that we have new players in the game um, there must be a change to governance where instead of having uh, a few in a, in a room that the deciders of change should be all of us rather than giving a few people our unchecked trust to represent us in, in behind closed doors. Discussions of change should really take place in auditoriums, in big halls, on TV, and be really open. Essentially what I'm calling for is a social awakening and a scale back of epic proportions of our collective greed, hubris, arrogance, gluttony, selfishness. And as ever, the brilliant late uh, Maya Angelou dictated to the equally exquisite Oprah Winfrey, who my mum's a huge fan of. She said once, now that I know better, I do better. Most of us, I feel, know better just because of sheer uh, access to 
the internet and so put simply we therefore must all do better but alas we are all human and therefore despite knowing sometimes life gets the better of us Right, so if you've enjoyed listening to this episode and want to understand more about the social contract and the key thinkers behind it, like John Jack Rousseau, then for this week's uh, recommendation, I would like to point you to a brilliant old episode of the uh, In Our Time BBC Radio 4 show hosted by Melvin Bragg. The episode I'm pointing you to can be found on the BBC Sounds app and it was put up on the 7th of February 2008 um so yeah just give the the app a download I am not being sponsored by the BBC but if anyone's listening feel free to sponsor me I'm just sharing uh because I really love that episode and think that you can learn a lot they do focus a lot on Rousseau so um yeah quite centered on Rousseau general will that kind of thing but it's really interesting uh Melvin Bragg obviously legendary and he he leads the conversation and so I think you'd really enjoy that and that's it for today's show thank you so much for listening to this first episode of the social contract today podcast brought to you by Podbean hosted by me Jacqueline Courtney give us a follow at contract today and with that uh do tune in to hear more about how the social contract is faring in our world and if you have something to say about today's topic uh, and what I've said and how best we can rewrite the social contract then please write in to this sc today at gmail.com thank you for listening see you soon <laughs>